love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to be taking care of business. Hey, got some questions about using that song in today's questions from you, the listeners. We'll be addressing that, how you use song clips, movie clips, and those kind of things. I hope you're having a wonderful day today. The time when there's a lot of opportunities. This is not a time to assume that we have to wait till things get better. Nah, things get better when we get better. So you can go ahead and get better, and you'll find opportunities are in abundance. Here's some of the questions we're going to be addressing today. I'm worried that I'm not being hired because of my perceived lack of enthusiasm. Well, that can be addressed and you can take care of that pronto. Here's another related one. Dan, I'm sure I'm come, I come across as quite boring to others. How can an introvert get ahead in the fast-paced business environment? Somebody wants to know, says, tell us more about what your mortified professors said when you told them your decision not to complete your doctoral dissertation. All right, I'll do that. Dan, how can we price our seminar materials so we're not too high or too low? Lady says, I love the freedom and security I find in owning my own business. However, I wonder if I would ultimately be happier working for someone else. Interesting question. Here's another one. Dan, I started a new job five months ago making $60,000. Yesterday, another company offered me a position at $80,000. Should I leave? Well, we'll be addressing those and more. This is the time each week where I take 48 minutes to go through some of your most interesting questions that you submit, where it reveals, you know, these are not just unique, individualized questions. The things that are asked always apply to us in other applications anyway. You know, that's the thing about success or failure principles. They're very transferable. So if I go to an investing seminar, but I'm not an investor, I'm probably going to learn two or three things from that presentation that I can use in what I do to be successful. You know, yesterday I sent a link to a video presentation, sent it to my son and uh, three or four other people who I thought could benefit from it because the video presentation was so well done. Well, I got a note back from one of them says, man, are you aware of some of the bad publicity this guy has out there, some of the things that he's been accused of? And I wrote back and says, yeah, I'm very aware of it, you know, and probably most of it is true. But I said, that for me does not take away from the value that I get by listening to ideas he's presenting. I mean, if we dismiss an entire person because we don't agree with one thing, we're gonna limit our circle of friends real quickly. If we dismiss somebody because they have a different theological perspective than we did this morning in my guides group, we were talking about, you know, were Adam and Eve really the first human beings or were there humans before that? Well, I won't give you any opinion on that. We had a lively discussion, but what if somebody differs from my view? Should that be enough to then cause me to eliminate that person from any contact of mine at all. We talked about some of the bookstores, you know, there are bookstores that will not, there are Christian bookstores that will not stock Joyce Meyer books or Joel Osteen books because their philosophy is somehow not narrow enough defined to fit in with what that bookstore thinks they ought to be selling. 
Well, I tend to look for truth in a lot of different places. And I listen to people, I read books um, that uh, perhaps other people would not choose to read, but I always find truth just hiding, lurking behind the bushes in a lot of different places. So when we have questions on here, it may not be your particular situation, but I would venture to say there are principles that you can extract for your own application. Here, if you've got a question, you can send that question to askdan at 48days.com or just go to the podcast link at 48days.com and you'll see a little starburst pop up there and it'll give you a little space where you can ask your question. I'm delighted to scan through those. Obviously, don't get to all of them, but I'd love to have your question submitted so we can review it and maybe include it in an upcoming podcast. Got some events coming up here at the sanctuary. Got, um, I think we're getting close to sold out on our last Right to the Bank event. You know, that's one area that I have uh, been surprised by my own enjoyment of getting involved in and helping encourage other people who want to turn their writing into something significant in their lives. I didn't anticipate that five years ago, but because of the request, we developed some things, and I find that it's an area that I thoroughly enjoy. So if you want to join us for the last event coming up in September for right to the bank. Certainly jump on there, check out the options, ask us questions if you'd like, and we'd be happy to include you in that group. Also have a coaching with excellence conference coming up. That'll be a two day event, September 15th and 16th. If you want to turn your coaching into a real life opportunity and a real income producing opportunity, we'd love to help you walk through that process. Well, here's a quotation for today from William Shakespeare, who said, This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the day the night. Thou canst not then be false to any man. I find a lot of people who are trying to perform according to somebody else's expectations. What parents, the church, friends, family, whatever, whoever, somebody else's expectations. That's not a way to achieve excellence. That's a way to achieve frustration and disappointment. Above all, to thine own self be true. Now, this is not just a selfish, egotistical kind of formatting either. This is a way to release the very best that you have to offer. It's by knowing what is unique about you. What are your own passions? Those are the ways to find the very best. Now, I want to give you a business principle this morning. This is something that's come up again and again and again, and I finally just decided, you know, I need somehow to just frame this. I'm going to make it very brief, but I want to, it has to do with managing time. I work in focused, uninterrupted blocks of time. This crap that we hear about multitasking or parallel processing is a bunch of malarkey. I have yet to meet somebody who does that well. I mean, study after study has shown that people who are distracted, like if you have your email set so it automatically dings when one comes in, that is killing your productivity. I mean, not only does it kill your productivity, actually an interruption like that can be measured to show a drop in IQ. It causes your intelligence to drop when you respond to distractions. You know, I mean, it's like uh, smoking a joint. I mean, it really is pretty comparable to that. The things that we try to trick ourselves into or tell ourselves we can do, well, I'm multitasking, blah, 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 and this comes all the way down. I mean, try to tell a four-year-old that you're multitasking because you're, you've got the TV on, you're reading a newspaper, and she's standing there talking to you. Does she believe that you're paying attention to her or listening to her? No, absolutely not. And she's right. You aren't. 
lay down the newspaper, turn the TV off, give the four-year-old your undivided attention. I do not even attempt to multitask. Now, there's a lot of different things I do during the course of a week. And with seven different components in my business, there's a different things that I do. So it's not like I just blindly do one thing, but when I do one thing, I do that only. When I write, which is the primary focus of my activity, I don't have a phone in my office. I don't have emails that automatically come in. I don't take calls on my cell phone. I mean, nothing. I write. So if I do that for two or three hours, guess what? There's a tremendous burst of productivity. So be careful about confusing the issue, thinking that you're going to trick your brain and you're going to increase your productivity because you're multitasking. I don't believe it can be done effectively. You know, I hear the same thing as it relates to sleep. I heard an idiot, well, I actually read an article one time where this goofball said he was going to set his alarm clock one minute earlier every day. And he thought that over the course of time, his body wouldn't notice a difference. And so he'd be down to three or four hours a night of sleep and he'd increase his productivity time absolutely nuts that's not going to happen i mean I, I sleep a lot i sleep soundly i love to sleep i love to just stretch out in bed and sleep and you know i'm, I'm going to need eight hours of sleep a night i can go to bed early most times so i still get up early but i need eight hours i don't function well if i've had six i'm looking for an opportunity to go back and get the other two but uh, these things we try to teach ourselves and think well we're going to just you know, slurp another jug of coffee or grab a, a what are these bolt all these energy drinks and that's artificially trying to deceive your body from what it needs pay attention to your body and i think you do that by getting enough sleep and by having focused uninterrupted blocks of time well enough for my meandering in that direction robert says dan i believe you're right when it comes to focusing on what's going on what one is going to instead of what one is leaving it eliminates negative feelings, but it has been tested in my company today. I found that a coworker is transferring to another branch because her hand was slapped by the director of our department. I can see that it would be best for her to focus on her new position, but at the same time, I feel something should be done about what took place. HR only assured her it would never happen again, and that was it. Meantime, she is a mess with stress and the memory of what happened. What would you advise to turn the other cheek and focus on the new position or to seek more from HR for what happened? Of course, she could do both, but that negativity would be there. How should she approach this while keeping positive? Wow, literally slapped adults. These are grown homo sapiens in a workplace, and somebody gets their hand slapped. I mean, that's what the nun does to you in a third grade, but we don't usually encounter that in an adult working environment. I mean, that's pretty preposterous. Now, I always tell people that we want to look at what you can control and what you cannot control. So if you can't control those kind of absurdities that are happening in that work environment, then it may be wise to look for another place of employment. And no, I don't think you should go after HR. I mean, what's, what's to be gained? Surely she doesn't want to get her former position back. I mean, and what if she gets the director fired? Then what? Then everybody in the company is going to be looking over their shoulder at her, wondering if, if she's going to go after them next. I mean, turn the other cheek. Eh, figurative. I, I think that's probably the most winning response here. That doesn't mean that you just, you know, tuck your tail and you just take it, but it does mean you focus on the future and move on. 
And maybe this was just the motivation this lady needed to find or create her dream work environment. So yeah, I'm going to stick to my basic philosophy. I don't think there's much to be gained by looking back. I think there's a lot of wasted time and negative energy in trying to make things right to, um, you know, sue people and uh, claim discrimination. And so on. nobody wins in those kind of situations. They really don't. I mean, you're better off no matter which end of that you're on, perhaps to just find a new place to engage your work self. Um, yep. Tough situation. Got to decide, you know, is this the best option for, or can she do a job search and find a better work environment? Daniela says, hi, Dan, your books and podcasts have inspired me. I was non-renewed from my teaching job last spring, and I've been applying to jobs since February with no luck. I've had around 10 interviews. In the last interview, the principal told me that of 58 applicants, they interviewed only seven, and of the seven, I was one of the top four. When I asked what I could have done better, he said, be more animated. I've been given the same feedback from my old principal and a few other people. I've tried smiling more, using more intonation in my voice and saying things like, oh, there's one thing I love about teaching. That is, but I'm worried that I'm not being hired because of my perceived lack of enthusiasm. Even though I love teaching, do you have any tips on how to be more animated? Now, here's another question. This comes from Keith, which is really the same issue, and then I'll address both of them. Keith says, I've recently changed jobs. I sincerely want to do well, learn all I can, and get along with people. However, I'm sure I come across as quite boring to others. I notice people back off from me after a time, and being so new to this position, I really need to have all the friends and connections I can so that I can make it. I'm quiet, soft-spoken, and private. I like to read, take care of things around the house, and attend church. I'm not the late-night partier, nor do I have any wild stories to share. How can an introvert get ahead in the fast-paced business environment? Thank you, Keith. Well, Keith and Daniela, these are both great questions, and fortunately for you, there are things you can address very quickly. You don't have to remake who you are, how God has wired you. We're not talking about that. But in the work environment, there are going to be things that you can do that are going to make you be seen as more of a team player, make it more appealing for other people to want to be around you, those kind of things. Now, here's some tips. Listen to your own voice. Do you sound enthusiastic? I mean, when people are doing interviews, I tell them to do a sound check where they should record themselves in an interview. You can do that inconspicuously, or a lot of interviews are done via the telephone. Record yourself. Watch yourself. Now, one of the things that if you're doing an interview over the phone, by all means, stand up. Do your interview standing. You speak more forcefully when you're standing. You have more energy in your voice. So just help yourself in that way. But ask yourself, do you sound enthusiastic or do your sentences just kind of trail off to nothing? Now, now there's a lot of things that we can pick up in speech. And you may want to work with a speech coach, as I have done for many years. There are some things, too, when somebody is insecure and not lacking confident, what they tend to do is they tend to end their any statement they make where at the end of the sentence they go up. Um, and what do you think of this weather? And they, it, it conveys a real weak position where they're, they're essentially saying, gee, I'm not sure this is even true, but you know, do you agree? And they go up and it's a, a, it's a voice pattern that very clearly conveys their lack of confidence, lack of boldness. So you can practice those things. Look somebody directly in the eyes. 
Shifting eyes tell them you're not really interested, and it also speaks of low self-confidence. Practice your handshake. When you shake hands with people, you know, is it a nice, firm handshake? Now, you don't need to break anybody's knuckles, but don't give them the old wet, limp noodle. Hold your shoulders back. The way you sit, your body posture has a lot to do with how your voice sounds. Hold your shoulders back. When you walk through the office, walk 25% faster than you normally would. That's going to tell people, wow, there's somebody that knows what they're doing. They know what they're about. They're getting things done. Just that alone, it'll do that. Let go of any resentment, unforgiveness, guilt. Express gratitude for everything in your life. I mean, those are things where you can very quickly be seen as somebody who has more energy, more confidence, more boldness, and more enthusiasm. Thanks for your questions. Well, Rusty from California says, Dan, after reading the seven habits of highly effective people, I realize that my biggest weakness is that I've not begun with the end in mind enough in my life and have drifted without a plan. Do you have any advice you would offer for setting life goals, both personal and business related? Do you have any books or resources you would recommend? Sure. Let's, let's just, we'll make this real simple here. On the 48days.com site, you can go to resources and there's a drop down. You go to worksheets, go to worksheets and you're going to see all kinds of forms there for helping you plan your life, planning what you want to accomplish. I have the 2012 goal worksheets there. Fill those out. You got to be able to identify what does success look like for you? What do you want your life to look like three years from now, four years from now, one year from now? If you can't identify what you want your life to look like one year from now, yeah, you're going to be just drifting without a plan. But as soon as you start to say, you know what? I want to have a 3,500 square foot house by June of 2013. Boom, you've just made that a goal. That's not a wish, a dream. Gee, I want to be in a bigger house. No, you've made it very specific with a timeline connected to it. That's how you get out of this drifting without a plan. Even if you feel like it's artificial and sometimes people resist setting goals because they think it takes all the spontaneity out of life. Well, I just want to kind of wake up in the morning and see what happens. No, you're going to grovel along at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, those are the people who end up with $10 an hour jobs because they have no goal for anything better than that. If you want something better than that, you have to decide what would that look like? Gee, I want to be making $50,000 by this time next year. Okay. That's a goal. This time next year, 50,000. Where are you now? Track it. What do you have to do to increase so set those goals, get clear on what you want your life to look like, and it'll break you out of this self-defeating pattern. Well, Tim says, Dan, in one of your podcasts a while back, you mentioned you worked with an individual who started a pet food delivery service. This caught my attention more than anything ever has, and for the past several months, I can't stop thinking about the idea. What would be the best way to get this kind of service started for myself? How or where would be the best way or place to get pet food in the beginning without having to stockpile a large inventory. Also, there's nothing like this in my area, so how could I test the market before going all in? What's the best way to market a business that is not up and running yet? How could I let people in the area know about the service without buying a bunch of pet food, no one buying it? Well, well thanks for your time. Great questions. They all lead right in one very clear direction. Anytime you're thinking about starting a business, and this is a great business, incidentally. I believe in this business a lot, where you do mobile pet food delivery. I, I am not a rabid pet owner. We have one very, um, very well-behaved parakeet and uh, very, suits our needs for a pet very well. That's it, obviously pretty simple. If we wanna leave for a week, we put a little more food and water in the cage, boom, he's fine, we come back, everything's cool. 
Now, a lot of you who have pets, be that dogs, cats, or whatever, the common ones, a lot of you are more particular about what your pets eat. You don't just grab, you know, the good old boy stuff from the bottom shelf at Walmart. You want something that is better quality than that. Okay, be that as it may, a lot of you go to special stores to pick that up. It's not an easy or not a, a, a big stretch at all to know there are a whole lot of people out there who would pay for the service, the convenience of having specialized pet food delivered there. Here's the way you explore that. This is what's called due diligence. D-U-E, due diligence that you do before starting any business. Just jump online and look at all the franchises and business opportunities for mobile pet food delivery. There are tons of them. You learn from what they already have in place. You ask them for information. Business opportunities are going to send you information because they want you to buy their business opportunity. You can learn 90% of what you need to learn from reading through their information about how it's done. Even stronger are franchises. Franchises, if you ask for information, they have to give you what's called an FDD. Now, that's an abbreviation for Franchise Disclosure Document. It used to be UFOC, Uniform Franchise Offering Circular, but they recently changed it to FDD. So you ask for information, they have to send you their Franchise Disclosure Document. That's a legal document that's heavily regulated And they have to tell you a lot of inside information in that and be very realistic about income claims and all that. That's where you learn. You can learn everything you need to know by studying the information from the people who have already done it. Now, having done that, you can then decide, is it easier to launch your business by getting a business opportunity or a franchise? And in many cases, that would be true. If they've got name recognition and all that, you may find that the way to go. But you also may decide, eh, You don't need to pay the franchise fee. There's really not enough name recognition anyway, so you can make it your own brand, your own name. You can duplicate everything they're doing and do it better. Uh, I've been through that process many, many times with people and myself where made that decision, am I going to get a franchise or just do it myself? And frankly, I usually end up just doing it myself. Now, if it's gonna be something where there's a lot of name recognition like Subway or McDonald's, you know, then, or even Kim, Kim, uh, what is it, Kim Dry, for the dry or the carpet cleaning business, then perhaps there's enough name recognition. That's a lot of what you're paying for. But if you're going to decide where to get your shirts dry cleaned, eh, most of the time it doesn't, there's not enough name recognition. You can put up, you know, Joe's cleaning. And if you do your marketing well, you can be in business without paying the initial franchise fee and the ongoing royalty fee that's expected in that situation. Ann says, my husband's been running a not-for-profit residential construction company for the past two years. Now, have any of you heard of a not-for-profit residential construction company? Well, I hadn't either, and I got that far, and I thought, oh, that's unusual. And then she adds, not on purpose. We want to make a profit, but we just can't get our head above water. In the past, the company was thriving, doing $2 million in annual sales, Tragic events happened, including the economy. It's been a downward spiral since 2009. We get our bills paid and we eat, but that's it. We don't have the capital we need to do the larger jobs, which aren't many. My husband's extremely talented in this line of work, except when it comes to marketing and the business side of the work. Should we stick with it or try to find a company to work for, which means traveling to a larger town? Well, you know, residential construction is done by 
a whole lot of different people. I mean, I have some workers at our place here right now as I'm speaking who are building a storage shed on the backside of our barn. Now to do that, you know, I didn't look at the yellow pages and choose a big residential construction company. I knew some guys who were used to doing this kind of small project, talked to them. We worked out an agreement where I pay them for their time and labor. I buy all the materials directly. They use my truck, my carts to go get products that we need, materials we need at Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever. So it's a very easy kind of arrangement. I mean, just be flexible in how you set up what you're doing. Don't have just one cookie cutter plan. Now, I think there's a whole lot of opportunity for people in construction as the economy is coming back around, as residential building is going up again. No, I doubt that this is a time to go look for a job in a bigger town where you have to drive and give up your own independence. I mean, once you've tasted entrepreneurship, it's pretty hard to go back to being an employee, especially when you're in the same industry and you see how things could be done better. What you're talking about here is the fatal flaw for anybody, no matter whether the economy is good or bad, and that is not doing a good job of marketing and the business side of the work. You cannot be just a technician. So whether you're, you have the ability to build houses or pull teeth or mow yards or wash windows, that's not enough. If you're going to be in business for yourself, you have to know how to market and how to run the business side. You can learn how to market well. Now, that's another one of the worksheets we got. I'm pretty sure we've got that out there where I've got 48 ways you can effectively market your business. You've got to do four or five things consistently. Uh, The days are gone where you can just do good work and just expect people to knock on your door. Don't hope for that. Don't wish for that. Be strategic in how you are marketing. You know, are you going to Chamber of Commerce meetings and are you going to BNI, Business Network International, where you have three minutes to stand up and tell the others in the group what you do and then get referrals from them. I mean, do be doing four or five things consistently with excellence and you'll build the business. That part you can take care of. If you do good work, then stay with what you're doing. Just take care of the other marketing side and ramp it back up to where it ought to be. Dave, Dave, said, Dave from Wisconsin says, Dan, tell us about what you're mortified professors said to you when you told them your decision not to complete your doctoral dissertation were they mortified that others will figure out what you did uh, were their arguments you know what arguments did they make against your plan well to, again just just briefly and I, I know i've mentioned this in the past but i, I did my a master's degree and then i did my doctoral studies but when i reached the end of that i met with a committee and reviewed what would be required to complete my doctoral dissertation And just in a synopsis, I said, it appears to me I can spend a year and a half completing this piece of work that nobody in the world would ever read again, except the four of you. So you can give me a piece of paper so I can put on the wall or I could use the same amount of time and energy and write a book and hope to make a million dollars. Well, that's exactly what I did. And that is, yeah, that at that point they were mortified, astounded, confused. I could do a thesaurus on all the words that apply for their reactions when I framed it as I did. But that's exactly what I did. 48 Days to the Working Love is, in essence, my doctoral dissertation. And it has served me very well. Thank you very much. What that means and what they were quick to point out is I don't have the prestige of having that degree on my wall. I can't ask people to refer to me as Dr. Miller. Um, I'm, I'm losing all the value of all the coursework I already completed. Well, no, I'm not, doofus. 
I mean, I, they can't take away the value of the coursework. I love the learning. I got a lot out of that. I love the process, every, every part of it that can be taken away. Yeah, whatever. I mean, it's just one of those counter con- contrarian ways that I tend to view the world. I've been very delighted with my decision. Now, could I go back to that? I could probably go back to the same university and say, look, in, in light of everything I've done, how about if you give me an honorary doctorate? Oh, whoop-de-doo. I mean, if that happens, that's fine. But again, I'm not going to cross the street to get that either. I mean, I'm not being cynical about that, but it just, I, I was very clear. I've always been very clear about what I wanted to accomplish and what I needed to get there. So I don't get caught up in systems and methods uh, just that are perceived to be normal. If they are perceived to be normal, I'm probably going to be running the other way. But uh, yeah, those old guys, every once in a while, there's some encounter that I have and they still are mortified. And yeah, they do not want me to spread the word to others who are in that fine institution or other institutions about what I did. They think that would undermine the validity, the prestige, the value of getting the doctorate, which I chose to bolt and run at the last minute. Well, Connie from Nashville says we have real estate training material. Think real estate, grow rich. Uh, presents Funk to Fabulous, renovating residential property for maximum profits. All right. Uh, before one is considered an expert in the field, how would we go about pricing training material? We're creating a few programs for sale on our website and with plans of future speaking engagements and backdoor sales. We want to have enough margin to share or split with the organizers, but we don't want to under or overprice our material. How do we structure the price of our material? where it will be fair for promoters and not be overpriced on our website. Love, love, love what you do. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and talents with many. Well, thank you, Connie, for your question. I love what you and Sheila are doing as well. Incidentally, thank you for the gift certificate you sent recently to Sole Mio, the Italian restaurant downtown. Wow, what a treat. We, we went there the other night. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful ambiance and service level and food quality. So thank you for that. It was a delight to be there and certainly made us appreciate even more the work that you guys are doing. Now, in regard to pricing your training material, there's no right or wrong about pricing your training material. You just experiment with it to find that sweet spot. I just bought a program yesterday from Ariel Ford, who's been a book publicist all of her life, book publicist and literary agent. And the material was $997 now that, well, you know, there's a lot of content there. It relates to all the material that I draw together to help provide good content for my right to the bank program. And I may go ahead and get that. And then she had, here's a 50% off code, good until midnight tonight. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. I mean, I already thought it was a pretty good deal. And then she throws in 50% off. Now, how would I have responded? And, and I did purchase that incidentally. So boom, it was $498 change or whatever boom i purchased it instantly how would i have responded if she had priced it at 498 dollars originally i don't know but obviously she was content to get 498 dollars for it but she presented it in a unique way where it is really 997 but here because you're one of my regular readers here's 50 percent off coupon code man i jumped on it now, you can do a split test where you have duplicate web landing pages where you, on one you advertise in a radio show in Houston, you send them to this page, and the product is $197. And you have the same promo 
you run in Dallas and you send them to a web landing page, the same product, but it's $497. See where do you get the most response? I mean, seminar promoters typically do split runs. Here's an example of how you would do that. If you have a mailing list of 50,000 names, I mean, you never mail out a promo to all 50,000. You do a random test. So if you do a truly random test, you may select 5,000 names out of that. You send a promo for $600 to half of that test group. And you send a promo to the other group for $900, but with instructions that if they register today, they get a $250 discount. Now, obviously, they're still paying more, but I mean, just experiment with things like that. I mean, anybody who's been in the seminar material business, I mean, I've certainly done lots of things like this, but you talk to, or look at Brian Tracy or Tony Robbins, uh, Zig Ziglar, and Dennis Waitley, all these guys, they do tons of repurposing content where they just, if you want Tony Robbins newsletter, you can get a newsletter for $14 a month, or you can get one for $2,500 a year, or you can go to a one day seminar to present the same material and it's $2,500 or come to a weekend thing and it's $6,500. I mean, the same content just keeps, keeps putting, putting out there all the time, different ways you can do the same. So just experiment with it. Just have fun with it. I mean, a lot of it is supply and demand. If you're uh, filling a hundred percent of your seats at your seminars at a live event, then you can look at increasing the price. Now, obviously, if you only get two people to show up, then you may want to try a different strategy. I mean, Joanne used to, uh, she used to fill in at Christmas time with a friend of hers who had this jewelry kiosk in the mall. And Joanne's a master at this kind of stuff. You know, they could have necklaces that are $4 each. All right. Joanne would put up a sign and said, today only choose three pieces for only $20. Well, that's almost double the price. But if it's today only three, four, $20, people jump all over it. And so, you know, we do a lot of that. I mean, it's no secret. We do a lot of experimenting with things. I mean, we find that $17 is kind of a sweet spot for an ebook. So I can create anything in an ebook, put it out there, boom, people will buy it. Lots and lots of people. Then every once in a while, like once a month, we'll say, hey, take your pick of any of these ebooks, only $10. I mean, it is so predictable we can we can write a check you know buying a new golf club membership or whatever in advance now i don't do that obviously but i mean it's so predictable what's going to happen when we do something at ten dollars people are going to flock to it they're going to jump all over it because it's usually 17 but today it's ten dollars and we, we use that to our advantage i mean a lot of times i mean if you think about it i'm an author if i write a 240 page book and it sells for fourteen ninety five. It's going to be on Amazon for ten bucks. All right, I'm going to get maybe a dollar and fifty cents out of that. What if that book has ten chapters? What if I make each of those chapters a standalone unit and turn it into an ebook that we sell for seventeen dollars each? But then we have specials where we sell them for ten dollars. Now, if you followed the mathematics of what I just talked about, if a book has ten chapters. I sell each chapter for $10. That means somebody getting the book has paid $100, not $10 for the whole book, $100. That's not unrealistic in the way that we deliver information. So a lot of things I deliver in short eBooks rather than in another traditional trade book because there's such a bigger return when you do it in that way. Well, Nebby says, 
Dan, I'm part of the Kurdish community here in Nashville. Every year we do our community yellow pages so we get local businesses, banks, and organizations to advertise or donate. The book is free, and after paying for graphics, designing, printing, and other expenses, we make a small profit every year. After listening to your podcast, I know there are many more ways of getting advertisers and other ways of increasing our profits. I just need some tips and ideas. Yeah, you're onto a great thing. You have a you have what's called an affinity group. The Kurdish community is going to be very loyal to each other, and they're going to want something that addresses the needs of just that one small community. So that's great. So then you go to a group that wants to have influence in that community so what are the restaurants the insurance salespeople, the real estate people the roof repair people i mean you go on and on as i'm sure you do so that's a good marketing positioning if you're doing that then the logistics of printing it reaches kind of a tipping point Whereas to just use some artificial numbers here, let's say that if you have a 500 people advertising, it costs you $2 a piece to produce the book. If you have a thousand people advertising, it costs you $2 and 30 cents to produce the book. So what I'm saying is you reach a point at which adding new advertisers becomes almost no cost at all. It's almost pure profit. So obviously you want to know where that is. You want to get to that point and then go on from there. So it's not just barely covering costs, but so you get to the point where every new advertiser is 90% profit right straight into your bottom line. If you have a good model, then you ought to be able to just expand who are the prospects. You know, are you giving people exclusives? So you tell somebody if you're, you're going to be one of three insurance people or can you expand that? So you say, well, there's no limit. There's no exclusivity, but there, you know, you're going to be in a small group. I mean, get creative in how you can position it so people are more attracted to that kind of advertising. Now, one of the things you're up against is that the community yellow pages, I mean, think about all the ways that people get information. If I want to find a restaurant, if I want to find a plumber, if I want to find an attorney, chances are I'm not going to go to the yellow pages. I mean, there are a whole lot of avenues for people to market their businesses effectively today and Yellow Pages is diminishing in perceived value because people can so quickly jump online. So you may want to do some other things too with these same merchants. You may want to do essentially a group on our living social special where you say, you know, we're also going to give you access to this community where once a week we'll run a special just for your business. Where if you're doing a Groupon thing where instead of spending $20 for a meal, they're going to spend $10 and you keep $5 of that, where you've already built the network of Kurdish people that you're distributing this to. See, the last thing you want to do when you distribute this is just hand somebody a book and walk away. I don't care if it is free. What you want to do is you want to build a community, a network of all these people receiving that so you can go back to them with new and more effective ways using technology so you leverage the advertising business that you're in. You're not in the Yellow Pages business. You're in the advertising business. So you want to be looking at five or six ways you can do that effectively. Well, let me move on. Anthony says, Dan, I currently work at a factory. I'm on a four-shift rotating schedule making $48,000 a year. I interviewed for a sales position at a local car dealership. It's 100% commission. After training, I would get 25% of the gross profit. This is something I would like to try. However, being on 100% commission scares me. I'll be getting married in October. And, you know, I'd like to be home at night. 
I'm giving up the highest paying job in my area. What would you do? How do I deal with people who say that I'm crazy? People say I'm crazy. Boy, that rings a bell. I've heard that before. All right, you get the drift. John Lennon makes it very clear. People say, I'm crazy doing what I'm doing. Well, you're going to hear that. You're going to hear that in this, Anthony, when you go from a $48,000 a year position to going to all commission. Now, as you know, I love the car business, but I've never worked with a traditional dealership. You know, only with a friend and then by myself. I'd encourage you to get enough information about the opportunity before you make this switch. Now, most dealerships selling cars have surprisingly small margins. You may think they're making $2,000 on a car. That's going to be highly unlikely. They're also going to do things like add in dealer prep. I bought a car for my grandson recently we were in Colorado Springs and we were shopping and we were looking things that advertised on eBay Craigslist and dealerships and you know I I don't mind at all just hitting a dealership they're not impossible to deal with at all and that's where I ended up buying a Jeep Jeep Cherokee for my 16 year old grandson the dealership had on there they had it posted when you were sitting inside that they had a $685 dealer prep charge so when I made my offer, which was significantly under the price on the windshield, I said, I don't care how you package it, what you call it, but don't come back and then add on your $685 dealer prep charge. I know it's just built in packed for you. That's fine. But, you know, just don't come back with that. Well, he didn't. He accepted my offer. I was frankly surprised that he did, but uh, accepted my offer and we eliminated that. But for the selling salesperson a dealership if they made a $600 profit and they have a $300 dealer prep charge they're going to say we didn't really make $600 in the car we only made 300 so your commission would be on a 300 not the 600 so find out how those things are handled you know they may put lot charges on there you know their cost to Gee, I don't know, start a car up and bring it around the building and deliver it. But be very aware of those kind of phony things that dealerships pack to reduce the real gross profit that they show for commissions. All right, now, that being said, you just need to know that. But let's say that there's an average of $400 profit per car. So if you're going to duplicate the $48,000 in your current job, you'd have to sell 40 cars a month to generate $48,000 a year. Now that's a lot. I mean, that, that that's a lot, but let's say even if the average gross profit was $800 a car, which I really don't think it, you're ever going to find that to be the case, you would still have to sell 20 a month or essentially one every working day. That's pretty hard to maintain. Now I've made a lot of money selling cars, buying and selling cars, where I do expect to average a thousand to three thousand dollars per car, but I've never tried to make a living by getting twenty five percent of the gross profit from a dealership, and I don't know a whole lot of people who ever have made a living with that plan. 
So I think you're wise to have a great deal of caution in this situation, but explore, ask them those questions. Talk to some of the other salespeople about what they're doing, what their feeling is about being there, what they think the opportunities are. I mean, do your homework so you go into this wide open. The fact that it's going to be 100% commission, that doesn't bother me a bit. Now, that's interesting because, you know, I talk to people who are called salespeople, but they have a guarantee of $10 an hour. I guess how much money most of those people make? $400 a week. That's it. That's all they make. The people I know who are making two and three and $400,000 a year, they have zero guarantee. They're 100% commissions. So the more you require a guarantee, the more you limit the upside opportunity. So 100% commission is absolutely fine. I mean, that's the situation I want, but I want it to be in a situation where I'm confident I really can knock it out of the park. All right, let me grab a couple more here. Frank says, I've enjoyed your book. Uh, I got a great idea for a podcast business, but I'm hung up on one, one question I can't find the answer to. What about royalties? For example, do you pay royalties on taking care of business? Hey, you know that sound? You hear me use that? Do I pay royalties? Well, no, it's a different kind of situation. It's actually not called paying royalties, but I pay an annual licensing fee that I negotiated with Sony, who owns the publishing rights to that song, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Taking Care of Business. So I pay an annual fee for licensing to use that. Now, Frank says, I would love to include audio clips from TV, movies, and music, but I'm scared of the man, particularly since this would be an enterprise, not just a hobby. Is there a simple, cost-effective way so I can play clips and be protected? Love your podcast, Frank, from South Carolina. Well, thanks, Frank. Yeah, there, there, there are ways to do that. I mean, there, you can, if, if you just search for licensing for movie clips, licensing for music clips, you're going to find the big ones out there for movies are wing clips, real classics. Those are the big ones for movie clips. For licensing, the big licensing agencies are going to be Greenlight and Harry Fox. So you can get licensing for anything. Now it's complicated in a podcast. If you want to use just a little clip, most of these people scratch their heads because they haven't quite figured out yet how to operate in this space. But yeah, you can do that. Now also, when I talk about this, I mean, you, you, hear, me, you hear me use all kinds of clips on here. Hey, Here's this one. is John Tash, host of Intelligence for Your Life, and you're listening to my good buddy, Dan Miller. You know, finding your purpose and passion is the first step to living out intelligence in your own life. 48 days can show you the way. Now, back to Dan. Now, do I pay John a royalty? No, he's a friend. I just ask him to do that. You know, um, certainly, as, as like with this. Hey, this is Dave Ramsey, and you're listening to my longtime friend and career coach, Dan Miller on I Love My Work. Now, back to Dan. Well, those kind of things. I mean, there, there's no royalty. There's no licensing. Those are just things you ask for, and you can get those all day long. I've got lots of those. When it comes to movie things, there's a lot of gray area today when you're using it on a podcast. Now, for one thing, I use things liberally here. So I use, you know, John Lennon stuff, or I use you 2 I still haven't found what I'm looking for, or whatever. I don't even address the issue of licensing because I may use, you know, 10 seconds of something. It's just, it's one of those, and for the most part, publishers are gonna think, well, you're just giving increased exposure for our product, thank you very much, as well they should. The other issue is, 
this is a free podcast. You don't pay for it. I'm not turning this into an audio product where I'm going to sell it. That's different. There is nothing on any of my products that you purchase physical CDs where there is unlicensed music. Now you're going to find music that I use at the turnarounds and those I usually get from music bakery, musicbakery.com has thousands of music clips. You purchase it for use on a product that you're producing yourself. So yeah, I do lots of that, but those I do purchase from music bakery. Well, speaking of music, man, oh man, I can't believe we're there already, but you know what this means when you hear taking care of business coming up. We're out of time. Hey, thanks for being part of the 48 Days family. Thanks for submitting those questions. You can go to the podcast link at 48days.com, shoot yours in, or just shoot me an email at askdan at 48days.com. Hey, I know you are one of the growing crowd who is either finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, productive, and profitable. No compromises needed. Have a great week.